When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Catherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1928, and we'll be talking about Parade's End by Ford Maddox Ford, but mostly just the first volume, which is called Some Do Not. Um, There's four volumes in all, and I did not read them all. Uh, my guest today is Brian Hall, who has joined me before for the Gene Reese episode. Um, he's the author of many books, most recently The Stone Loves the World. Um, so, to summarize Parade's End, it starts with a wealthy conservative man called Christopher Tegens, who's more or less on top of the world. Um, at the beginning, he's brilliant, respected, rich, um, and then it's right before World War I. And at the end of the whole tetralogy, the structure of society has shifted away from him, and to some extent the war itself destroyed him because he, had, he gets like a brain injury that affects his memory. Um, but the whole, like, his whole morality, his whole understanding of, like, right and wrong and his place in society, everything is disrupted by the war. Um, and that's, that's the whole thing. Um, but just in the first section, in Some Do Not, he starts out on top of the world, um, and he marries this woman, Sylvia, um, kind of out of a sense of duty, because uh, there's, like, some possibility that her child is his child, and, but then she's, like, almost demonically focused on cheating on him. We talk about this a lot in the episode, don't worry. Um, and he wants to maintain this kind of saintly refusal to judge her for it, but um, it bothers him. And then he falls in love with this other woman who is this clean living athletic <laughs> athletics teacher, a gym teacher at an all-girls school, and she's called Valentine. She's a suffragette, um, and when her political activities get her in trouble with the police, he rescues her and her friend. Um, and they sort of fall in love. It's like the, a very deep love between them. They're determined to never consummate. Um, so even as World War One is starting and he gets this brain injury, Sylvia is saying he should absolutely go for it, go be with Valentine. She hates him. Um, and Tijans won't even kiss Valentine because he believes it would be wrong. That's the first of these four books. There's, so there's a whole lot of plot after that, but this is where we're stopping where I stopped. Um, anyway, on to our conversation. Brian, welcome back to the podcast. Um, I'm so glad that you, I'm so glad you pushed me to read this book. Um, <laughs> you had the enthusiasm to make this happen, which I am very grateful for, because this book, this was hard for me. Um, at first, I felt like, like my reading comprehension wasn't up to it. And then I felt like it was a book about the bad guy from every other book. And then finally, it kind of clicked for me. And I thought, actually, it's pretty amazing. I think that it was, it just had layers and I'm excited to talk about it. And I'm really excited to hear what you think about it. Yeah, and, and I'll say first my excitement about it came i hadn't read it before and i was reading it what several months ago 
And it struck me as so eccentric in in so many ways the 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 way he was choosing to tell the story uh and and the way the characters that he wants to do um which i find fascinating at times i still i resist uh which is fine i don't mind resisting stuff or i don't mind disliking aspects of a book there's certain choices he makes that i just think oh don't do it that way but the but but um but it's such an eccentric book. And I think people who haven't read it, you know, I guess there's the BBC version, which I haven't seen. But, you know, I think people tend to think of it, if they think of it at all, as sort of a English, you know, tetralogy about the war, perhaps, you know, they think of it, it probably is, as a... To be fair. Yeah, it is, it <laughs> is. But probably as a fairly... Um, you know, a fairly transparent text. Uh, and it's not at all. It, uh, Of course, he was hugely involved in the modernist movement. He knew a lot of those writers. This is two years after Ulysses came out. He, he, he's, he seems interested in doing his own version of, of a fractured narrative, um, but he does it a lot through incomplete dialogue um and less through ostentatious stream of consciousness he he has that but he bases it much more on the muddle of human communication uh which is so strong throughout this one this volume and i've read the second volume i haven't read all four yet but you start. Thank you. Thank you for not having read all of them. Yeah, I stopped at one, and I I wanted to continue, and then I was like, I'm going to be honest with myself and stop at one. Uh. The they're 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 slow going. Uh, if you really, you know, because I have to read, I have to read everything twice that he yeah. that he's doing here. Um, no, I did because, too. I, I went back to, when I finished the first one. I went back to the beginning because again, like I I told you, I I couldn't figure out who was talking. I couldn't figure out who the characters were. I couldn't. I felt like just really basic logistical stuff that I am surprised at myself for not being able to handle, even in modernist text. <laughs> it's like I can't believe how hard this is. Uh, but I got there, and then I went back and you know went through it again. And 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 like like most books that have, if they have any kind of artistry behind them, which of course this one does, uh, well, who, who is it that says, you know, a, a book teaches you how to read it as, as you yes. read it. It's a famous, I can't remember who it is. And by the time you do the second volume, you're um, the one called No More Parades, you're getting your feet a bit as to how Ford wants to tell these stories. Um, and the only thing I'll say about the second one, because it is relevant to discussing the first one, is that you begin to see how enormous for him the theme of muddle is. Muddled communication, muddled logistics, fatal muddling. Because the second one takes us uh, into when, is it pronounced? Teachings? Teachings. Teachings seems to be how everyone pronounces it in my audiobooks and in the, Good. Um, the TV show also. I watched that. Oh, so so <laughs> when, yeah, so many of these names are odd. He loves weird names. Uh, so Tijans goes back to the war, you know, uh, 
And the second one takes place when he's at this depot, this transport depot that he's been put into by his brother and some of these contacts so that he's not back at the front line. And in the second one, it's it's the to me, it's one of the best evocations I've ever seen in in print of absolutely maddening muddle at every level the logistics of moving people people speaking to each other understanding each other and of course in the war this is all leads to the deaths every single stupid muddled mistake leads to the deaths of people sometimes thousands of people and it's he does it so thoroughly in the second volume that it's maddening to read and it's and it's supposed to be you it feels claustrophobic and so this is kind of the payoff or 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 where he's going i think in this first volume where it's so hard for people to communicate to each other clearly no but nobody well, believes anybody so, else when they speak <laughs> so. absolutely so okay i gosh i have three things to say and i want to bookmark each of them <laughs> one is about the muddle the other is about E.M. Forster, and then the third is about the characters themselves. So the muddle, um, I think that that feeling of muddle and just the maddeningness of being unable to communicate is balanced by the simplicity of the characters in the first book, at least. The characters are almost like childishly simple in this way that is it's like they're like picture book characters. It's like they just each do one thing and they just keep doing it. Um, and the fact that they still can't connect or understand one another, it's half an inability to communicate on the side of the speaker and it's half an inability to listen on the side of the, the hearer because each of them is so determined to do the thing that they would do. Um, and the thing that they would do is cartoonishly simple at the beginning. Um, and I'll go into that in a little more detail in a minute, but I also wanted to contrast it with E.M. Forster, who I think of as like the novelist of the muddle. Um, and it in many ways felt like a reply to E.M. Forster's understanding of muddles, where uh, Forster is kind of like, like, why not just live according to your desires why not live honestly everything is meaningless anyway in the muddle um all these rules are just rules for no reason like why not be more free you know um and in that freedom you would be able to bridge gaps between people like you could speak more honestly if you were more free you could live with more passion you know things that I think are um, very easy to hear if you're an adolescent. Um, And I think that's one reason that, you know, Forrester gets read a lot more than uh, Ford uh, by adolescents. You know, it's a lot easier to pick up a room with a view than this book, which is basically like the hero of this book, Tijens, absolutely believes that the fact that the rules he obeys are nonsense is part of why he obeys them that he just believes in them so deeply that they are un- under supported that there's not really a reason that he should obey these rules and that that's why he believes in them so hard 
but he's and, the bad guy <laughs> and, <laughs> like and, and I, you or something at first and, and i think unlike forrester I think it's a really interesting comparison of the two because you're right, the Forrester's idea and the whole English self-image of muddling through, that's that's generally thought of as, oh, you know, we Brits, we, you know, we can't get our act together, but we'll muddle through. And I, I'm at the moment reading um, very slowly Churchill's history of World War II. And a huge amount of that is this same self-image of, oh, the Brits, they 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 can't get prepared. They can't see the problems coming, but when when their back is against the wall, then their you know true heroism comes out. And um, and I think you're absolutely right about Forster. He's looking. He's he's fighting against systems of thought, um, partly because he wants people to be open to less conventional you know ways of um, of interacting. Well, less I, conventional and like, you know, in a room with a view, it's it's kind of like, why not just be gay? You know, right, but it's right. like he doesn't say that explicitly, but you can pretty much read between the lines if that's what he means. Yeah. And like, just let people be gay. It's fine. Sure. You know? Sure. And um, but then it's that feeling that like, if you could just communicate outside of the structures of society, you would be able to connect better is sort of in Passage to India, or in like Howard's and there's sort of ways in which people, it's like if they were able to drop their stiffness and their proprieties, they could connect more ecstatically. And this is the absolute opposite of that. Abs I completely agree. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it because I think one thing, you know, that I'm, I'm sure you know, and we should keep in mind when we talk about this is that Ford did fight and suffer in World War One. He became shell shocked. He insisted on going back. Um, so he had presumably a genuinely terrible experience, um, a traumatic experience, and came out the other side, you know, as a as a writer, but maybe also as a Septimus Smith character, like from Mrs. Dalloway, that he brings with it. There's a unlike with Forrester, I think one of the reasons that Tijans, who in some ways is speaking for, or in some way is animating a big part of Ford's own personality. Tijans is so, has such a basically despairing dark view of human, of human um, society. Um, a lot of this book feels like an even a more acerbic version of Vanity Fair that, uh, you know, everything, you know, everything is, um, it's you know corrupt. Uh, everyone lies. Nobody nobody believes anything. That, uh, you know the goodness, Christian goodness, is impossible. And I I have the feeling that Tijans, who says in the book, as you know, he says at one point that he always wanted to be a saint. Yeah. Um, like his mother. You know, he's attached to his mother. He thinks of her as a saint. And his view is that. You know, the only way you can be saintly in in this society is to be an unmoving. He never tries to defend himself in any way. He sits there in the center uh, and and allows all of this stuff to swirl around him. And he feels that um, a trying to defend 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 himself is is useless. Um, and that, and that, if you take the forms away, the playing the game, you know, uh, the in fact, 
the parade. This, this, yeah. you know, what's going to be sort of the big theme of the book is the he has the line in here: the parade of circumspection and righteousness, or something like that. Playing the game, maintaining appearances, and he feels, and the book argues that the appearances are the only thing we have, and that if you take them away, it's it's chaos. It's not. It's not free communication. It's instead chaos. Now, I don't myself. I argue with a lot of this book when I when I read it. Um, and you go. Okay. <laughs> no. I okay. So I was thinking about the character Sylvia. Um, Sylvia is the woman that he marries, and she is just a bizarre like a bizarre creation of like nymphomaniacal sluttiness like yeah. it's like she's just determined to ruin his life by sleeping around at every turn and if she is stuck sitting in a drawing room for five minutes she complains she's bored and starts throwing dishes all she wants to do is like lie about the paternity of her child in order to ruin Tijin's life. You know, it's like, is she, does she have motives? Is she a person? Does she have any interiority? It's like, no, it doesn't matter. Like she's just, she's like um, a wind up toy that claps symbols, but the symbols I, are sleeping around. I, and, I agree. I mean, I don't, I don't think either Tijin's or Sylvia um operate as realistic characters well, okay um, so so hang on so i was just thinking about this and i was like why are you doing this like why <laughs> are you writing a tetralogy with this person at the center that you have so little curiosity about you know um and and then i was thinking well what is the decision that what is teaching's decision to marry her what is what is the meaning of that decision and the meaning of that decision is that he puts her in the relation to himself of wife and he doesn't have any curiosity about her like he's just like i'm doing the right thing because i slept with this woman it's possible that her child is my child therefore she will be my wife and that means that that she has the obligations to me of wife and i have the obligations to her of husband and i will fulfill my obligations to her no matter what she does. But there's no indication that she ever wanted to be a wife or is interested in, you know, either the like the pros or the cons of wifehood. It seems like like his determination to follow the rules, it it um blurs over any individuality that the people might have. It blurs over any curiosity. It's like he's making her into a cartoon character. And like the book is making her into a cartoon character to some extent, but Tijin's himself is also making her into this like, like square peg into round hole of wifehood that she's not suited for. And he's determined to not judge her, but to continue to not cheat on her even though he's in love with this other person. And it's like, it seems like this increasingly ridiculous sacrifice that he's making 
to not be with the woman that he loves, even though his wife is like, I hate you. Please go sleep with her. Leave me alone. We don't like each other. Can we please stop this charade? You know, and um, he's like, no, because we were married and I believe in monogamy. And it's like, um, it's like he refuses to see a world of nuance. And in some ways, what he's forced to do in the tetralogy is he's forced to, you know, be destroyed if you see him at the beginning, his forthrightness and his self-certainty as like, he sees himself as this kind of colossus or saint. You know, he's like, he's so smart. He's so ethical. He obeys the rules even when the rules are completely nonsense um, and everyone hates it. Um, But it also means that he won't actually perceive other humans in a kind of adult way. It's like everyone is just their their duty and whether they're they're fulfilling their duty or not that's the only thing that a person can do and that his saintliness is refusing to judge people for not fulfilling their duty um and it's not like personal happiness is exactly on the line it's like perception of other humans as something beyond like um you know whether the servant brings the tea on time or not Like in some way, he just sees people in their role in relation to himself and whether they are there or not. Um, And like the the cartooniness of the book, like of the characters, how like non-naturalistically they're drawn at the beginning. I was like, oh, you're doing a thing. You know, (laughs) like the the super honorable, saintly, self-sacrificing guy it's like it's not that it's his personal happiness because it is chaotic once he is forced out of that role um he isn't happier to not be you know to have this like clean conscience and sense of certainty it's more like he's actually encountering people as people Right. This is my feeling about the book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I agree. I agree with all of that. I I think the 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 basic way I think about the novel is coming just from a slightly different angle. Not to say that it disagrees with you. You might agree with this completely. Um, I feel his approach to these characters here I'm a little bit on thin ice because I know the word like the symbolist movement and symbolist poetry. I'm not quite sure if I know it, what it means exactly enough to that. If I'm right, if I talk about this being in some way, a symbolist novel, but listeners um, uh, write in if if Brian's wrong. Write us a letter. Tell us. us Exactly. You don't know symbolism (laughs) symbol. So, you know, uh, let me. Uh, this book is so interesting and weird that it's hard to talk coherently about it. You have to kind of approach it from various angles. But one one of the things that I thought about while reading it was that um, Tijans, in a way, is 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 a cousin to uh, Fanny Price in Mansfield Park. You know, Mansfield oh, Park is yeah. set up in such a way that Fanny Price is the 
not only is she the unswerving moral center of the novel, she's the unmoving moral center of the novel. Everything rotates around her, and her judgments are always um, morally and ethically infallible. And everybody in the book is judged by their their attitude toward Fanny Price. The, the the better characters are, the more the more good they are, the more they can see in Fanny Price that she's a jewel or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And the less ones can't see it. And Tijens is like is sort of like the Fanny Price of this novel. And and you can I the thing <laughs> if Ford were a friend of mine, and I was looking at this in manuscript, I would say, hey, I love what you're doing here. I think it's really fascinating. But here's a couple of suggestions. And <laughs> good, good. No, I want to hear the suggestions. <laughs> I, I've read it now twice because I reread it you know, for this conversation. And um, I think I, I don't like... I think he overdoes teachings. I don't mind the sort of the moral certitude and the rigidity and the, you know, playing the game that that's fine for me, but his intellectual attainments, I find so over the top um, that I get irritated. Um, You know, if you want him to be the figure of, of rightness in a way, do you really have to make him, write in these ridiculously detailed ways. He says, two years before the war breaks out, we hear about this, you know, later in the book, he tells Sylvia, oh, there's going to be a war, there's going to be a general European war in 1914. It's going to happen right around the time the grouse hunting starts. And I kind of looked up grouse hunting in England starts August 12th. And so I thought, oh, come on, please, you know. (laughs) And the way he he can communicate with horses. He's like a Sherlock Holmes at times. He looks at the girth of the horse and he completely figures out everything that's happened to it. He has he talks to the simple folk and they all, you know, love him, you know, because he's like he's a he's a feudal he's a feudal lord and he's got this the book gives him this kind of idealized relationship with the country people on his father's enormous estates. I resist a lot of that. I mean, I, I still think the book's fascinating, but I I that that aspect of it I resist. And Sylvia, I think, is to a great extent a demon a woman. Um, you know, she's re- supposed this is, I think, how the novel is sets her up. Now we do hear some things about that 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 make us feel for her somewhat as a person. The fact that she was basically raped he doesn't use that word but he she's as a young woman who knows how young she's made drunk by this guy drake who who basically rapes her um and then and then she falls passionately in love with him um and and or sort of is obsessed with him and you get the sense that that initial violent relationship ford even refers to it as a mangling or a maiming he doesn't he doesn't shy away from the fact that something pretty awful happened to her seems to have set her her set her um you know the way she thinks about relationships with men um and and uh and so in a way um 
you know, this is the relationship that established her first passionate attachment is with someone who basically treated her violently. And Tejans yeah. is like a block of marble, right? She can't get him. She wants to bother him. She wants to get him angry. She wants to do something to break him out of this this in this encased armor of rectitude and no matter what she does you know she as you as we know she throws plates at him yeah yeah know? she's trying to get him to do something and it's the last thing he's going to do the the more she acts that way the more he retreats in uh, in the opening of part Two, which is then takes place and we don't realize it for a while of course this is the other thing is it every chapter he starts you trying to figure out what's happening because he sets it ahead and then he backs up to explain so that one takes place about five years later he's now been to the war he's come back he's been damaged and he's sitting at the table and she she just she can't she's walking around the room and she picks up a plate with salad stuff and she just throws it at him yeah. And he kind of ducks or moves aside, but some of the salad ends up on his tunic and drips oil on him. And when you first when you first read it, you're thinking, "What? You know, what is this all about?" But but um, but it does. I think, as cartoonish as they are, and I agree, they're basically. I think both of them stand as polar, sort of opposite symbols of a certain way. Um, but there is some psychological understandability um for her uh, her extreme actions yeah and i think that the the character of valentine the um feminist political girlfriend um i think she's an interesting foil to sylvia in that way where it's like she also is full of rage at her lot in life and is sort of channeling it into political action um, and in some ways, I think that that Tijin's refusal to um, Tijin's refusal to judge is Sylvia is also kind of the book's refusal to judge Sylvia, where it's like she's on the one hand cartoonishly awful, and then on the other hand, it's kind of like, well, you know, maybe she needs to vote and like, like, it, like I don't think that the role of wife is something that um that the book wants her to get used to exactly i don't know maybe i'm not quite saying what i mean right because i wanted to back up to a previous point you made about his silly degree of um being right about stuff and say um it's like a pet peeve that um i've written about this and you've written an extremely smart character in at least one of your books that isn't doesn't lean on this, but I think that like when um, an author tries to make a character seem smart by having them be correct about things that the author controls, it right. always seems very cheap to me. Like yeah. if the author has all the information, like oh, I believe it's going to rain tomorrow, and then it does rain tomorrow, and I'm just like, I don't, I don't like it. Yeah, yeah. Authors my, warned. <laughs> don't do it. My feeling about things like that is that you know the the author you're 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 in this world which you become to believe in a way is a real world as you read um and then you get reminded every now and then that this real world you're reading you know, this thing that feels like a real world actually does have a god in it and the god in that world is the author and if you start to feel that the god of that world is always on the side of one of the characters in the book 
um, you start to resist it. I think that's, for me, I've, I can't get many people to agree with me on this, but I've always thought persuasion, uh, Jane Austen's last novel, mm-hmm. uh, goes way too far in the direction of of um, of Austen as the god of that world, um, loving and approving of everything that I'm blanking on on the main uh, character's name, Anne, yeah. Anne Elliot. Anne Elliot, yeah. And so Anne Elliot is, you know, her family doesn't like her. No one listens to her. And I, when I read it, I always feel like, yeah, who cares if her family doesn't like her? The God of this world loves her incredibly. And so I don't, I don't need to worry about Anne. And there's something about his, uh, for his relationship with Tijans, which is too, it's just too much. Um I want to yep. pause on the thing you just said about persuasion, because I, I think that, you know, I, I appreciate the same strengths in persuasion that everyone else does. But the way that I phrased to myself the same complaint that I think you're describing is that we never see the conversations that, uh, what's his name, Captain Wentworth and Anne right. have that made them initially fall in love. So we only see them appreciating that the other one is still you know, essentially the same person that they used to be without seeing them having to prove that being that person to each other. So we only see like these incredibly detailed descriptions of exactly how awful everyone in her family is. And then like, well, what is so great about her? It's like, well, she's kind of selfless when somebody, you know, the child gets hurt and it's like, oh, okay. She like, she saved the cat, you know? Right, right. And it's like, I want, I want you to, show us how good she is like make her actually do something good make her say something smart you know i've always i've always wondered with persuasion i and I, we probably shouldn't talk about too long in this podcast but Sorry, i've always wondered, wondered you know as as we know i mean she didn't publish it while she was alive and it's, yeah. we're not at all sure that we're looking at a final manuscript it feels paragraph to paragraph like a final manuscript because the, the prose is polished there aren't any ellipses there aren't any weird inconsistencies but who knows i don't know how jane austen wrote her manuscripts and i've and it's shorter than her other books and i've always wondered if if this was a version that was then going to be filled out more with some of the things that i miss and that you miss in it compared to her other books um and then it didn't happen yeah. um, and just got published in this form. Well, and I think but, there's, uh, I mean, and this is what everyone I think appreciates about it is that there's a lot of pathos in the lack of control. You know, there's, there's pathos in the feeling of sorrow and regret in it and in how much more weight she gives the badness of the bad relatives than the goodness of her supposedly good person. Right, which right. she just kind of doesn't write for the most part. Um, but yeah, the effect is that the God of the world is on Anne's side. And I agree with you that the God of the world is on Tijin's side, but in a way, I think it's so, in a way, I just, I, I felt that way. I think I emailed you at this point saying like, this book i don't know about this 
<laughs> I don't know about this ride, you know. Um, but uh, but by the end, I I think I felt more like uh, like he's protecting himself from chaos, but he's also protecting himself from dealing with any human being in any way other than just as a category that like everyone is his vassal and they're either bringing him the correct number of pelts or they're not, you know? Right. And that that's such a, okay. So this was, this was another um, book that I was reading recently is that um, book, the great war on modern memory. Right. Also emailed you about in relation to this book. Um, and one of the points in that book is <laughs> it's about how English people think about World War One in art. And it doesn't talk about this book directly, but one of the things is about how much the British went into it with all of the structures of not really talking about what's actually happening on battlefields. So it's like talking about glory, talking about, you know, um, sort of Ivanhoeizing all their experiences like ways to not quite focus your eyes on reality. And I think that the like the keep calm and carry on poster or, you know, stiff upper lip, brave bulldog, all of those things um, are, are sort of cousins of this strand of English culture that's um, that really valorizes ignoring reality. And I think that that Tijans is a is a strong, you know, example of that. Um, and the fact that the war and the social changes around the war eventually force him to actually live in reality and an unpleasant, chaotic reality. Um, I kind of think that the other characters were already living there. Like Sylvia is already living in an unpleasant and chaotic reality, as you said, with the... Right. But then I think that Valentine is also like the fact that Valentine had to like after her father's death, um, she had to go work as a um, domestic servant and Tijins is attracted to her because he sees her jump and he believes that only upper class people can jump. <laughs> and exactly. Like, exactly. Like if she were it's active, one of his. It's, one of, it's his, one of his hilarious, hilarious ideas that that's what divides the upper class from the lower class. The lower classes can't jump. Totally. Yeah. And it's like, it's very much like of the time, like that, um, you know, I guess post-Crimean war focus on vitality. And it's like, they've got the germ theory and they're going to figure it all out. It's like, you know, you're healthier if you can jump. And if you're in a factory all the time, then... Yeah. Um, and she and as you know, Valentine, you know, teaches athletics at a school. So she's got a whole bunch of athletic little girls and she wears this uniform and they're they all live this, you know, clean life of jumping and running and calisthenics. <laughs> yeah, it's such a it's such a like repudiation of Victorian ideas of who the most attractive girl is, that she is she has a job, she is a suffragette she you know goes she is like puts herself in harm's way for her political beliefs um she supports her mother financially her mother's an author so i don't remember exactly where the money settles but she definitely is contributing financially to the family um 
But then the fact that Tijins looks at that and says, well, at least she's still kind of upper class because she can jump even though she was a domestic servant. And it's like, she's already living in a messy reality and he's living in this kind of goofy oversimplified reality that it's like, it all comes down to jumping or not. Like whether your feet are always planted on the ground or whether you can kind of, you know, jump. Sorry. I keep saying that word. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think what Ford is intending, and of course all novelists have their limitations and so Ford does too. And I think one of Ford's limitations as a male writer as most male writers um, still are today, but especially before 1980, you know, he has a he has a hard time um, bringing his female characters to life with the kind of convincingness that he does. The man, I mean, I think he's basically misogynist the way he writes, and you know that again, I don't I don't expect anything really different. So is a lot of the stuff about Sylvia as almost a snake demon. He refers to her as a snake a couple of times. In book two, there's a woman who is a, a tall, willowy woman who who is uh, um, likened to a snake also. There's something hey. about that. that this <laughs> I'm tall. Um, you may not know this. Yes, <laughs> yes, tall. yes. But, uh, but, I, but no one would say that. Anyway, so he's got this thing about demon women, which, you know, is a tiny bit uh rubs me the wrong way but but the thing i wanted to say is though i think his intention i think his intention for this first book and of course you can see it when you read it you know he's got part one and part two part one is basically exactly half of the book and and part one is before the war and then part two the war has begun teachings you know so very importantly um as a symbol of the kinds of things that have happened since part one, Tijins is basically, you know, the brain incarnate. Part two, we gradually figure out that he's already been over there. He's come back because something happened with an exploding shell nearby and he was brain damaged. And so he's he's lost his memory. His, uh, his processing power is still there, but he be, basically had no memory. And when you're talking about, you know, the idea of looking at the war and how do we think of it? How, how do the Brits want to think about it as, you know, glory and honor or horrible mess and death and viscera? There's that bit in book in the second uh, part of this book where Tijins is talking about waking up in the hospital, doesn't know his name. And uh, he's trying to tell this to Sylvia, and I think the banker has come by also. And again, this idea throughout the second half that the men who don't fight in the war all hate the men who did fight in the war or are fighting in the war and are trying to basically push them out of any kind of influence or society. So this banker who's there, and Tijans refers to, you know, he woke up, couldn't remember his name. The nurse went out, and then like two minutes later, they bring back carrying through what he calls pieces of the nurse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because she's been blown up outside the tent, and now they're bringing these body parts back that he recognizes as the nurse. And someone's and they and the people in the room listening to this basically can't even believe what he's saying. What? 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 What is that? Yeah. Yeah. Why would they? Why would they bring it right past you? That's ridiculous. Nobody would do that. 
Uh, and somebody says, was she dead? And he says, and Tijan says, well, it would have been a lot better if she had been, but but she wasn't. So you've got this um, very vivid, um, you know, look at the, at the real horror of this. And, and, and the bit where he hears the soldier on the other side of the tent, who's dying uh, and who's calling out faith, faith, and Tijans is trying to figure out, is that a religious exclamation or, or is that the name of a loved one? And then that leads him to remember that Faith was the name of the daughter of his father's head gardener. And it starts to really bother him that he can't remember Faith's last name and therefore the gardener's last name. Yeah. And that really bothers him because his memory has always been so good. That part struck me as so interestingly realistic in its details yeah. that I really wondered the way you do with good books is, is this something that Ford, you know, cause Ford was in the war is, is he drawing on real experiences here? Because it felt, it felt odd and exact and completely plausible in a slightly unexpected way. Um, that I, uh, there are parts of this book in the second half about, and then you'll see more in the second in the next book in the series uh, that I find is maybe where for me the great value of the books really lie. I'll see what I think about the the, the last two, but well, of this of this view of the war. Um, I agree. I definitely I had the same reaction to that scene that you did. Um, it definitely felt more real and more like it, you know, it, it felt like it was um, like played on different instruments or something than the rest of, than a lot of the rest of the book. Um, but so this, this was something that we actually had talked about a little bit in the, um, the great Gatsby episode that we did of this podcast um, is the way that um, a lot of the men who were in the war in that book use that, worldliness that they got to kind of lord it over particularly their women you know the the people who were not soldiers but also didn't have the possibility of being soldiers or they're like oh i've been overseas and you've been in your hometown like i've seen all these things and you've just been kind of here doing whatever um and i don't think that ford has that feeling i don't think that the it's like in some ways the the book is really misogynist and in some ways I think that it would like not to be. I think that he, it's like, he's not quite curious about Sylvia's mind, but I also think that like. I, I think that's a really good way to put it. I, I think Ford is trying his best to, to be, to be good or to be fair uh, to yeah. women. And he's of course got, some blind spots and so he he we reading many years later uh can can look at some passages and go mm, oh gosh i wish you hadn't done it that way um but but i think he's trying yeah like in some ways i think he he seems like motivated by this feeling that like um that that it's bad that somebody like Sylvia could ruin somebody like Tijans. There's some rage in his portrayal of that relationship, but at the same time, 
I mean, almost like Tolstoy, it's like obviously Tolstoy in some ways is extremely misogynist and in some oh, ways absolutely. Like, he can't help writing um, scenes that kind of work against himself. It's like he, he just makes characters work and the making the characters work um, makes arguments not work. Simplistic arguments don't work because the characters do, you know? Right, right. Um, and uh yeah so i like in some ways I, I felt like the book had that that feeling where like he knows that the universe that tijans the, the the world that would serve tijans would absolutely betray both sylvia and valentine and that both of them are being destroyed by that world and i think he kind of gets it that in some ways well, this is where I'm wondering, and I, I don't I don't want to read anything about the tetralogy as a whole because I want to experience it myself. I'm very curious to know to what degree the whole tetralogy is is about the education of Christopher Tegens, um going yeah. from this block of of rigid rectitude and you know, high Toryism. I mean, again, the, the the belief, literally, really, in a feudal system, yeah. where you you are the landowner, and of course you're benevolent because that's it's it's also of course it has its analog in the Confucian system. Everything's in its order, and you're at the top. But you know, your duty at the top is to be a good person, and that's why goodness is important. That's why that's why rectitude and rules because you have this power. And they're all like your children, and you treat them well the way you treat horses well and the way you treat dogs well. And and Tijans is presented to us in that first, the first half of this volume, uh, in the full bloom of this encasement uh, of himself in these beliefs uh about about the great chain of being or whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah. And then and then 150 pages into it there's a break of five years and now he's been brain damaged and he's been in this war and we're going to see more of the war and you know we think uh, other things to think of uh which remind me i guess it was like five years later or so um virginia wolf uh, wrote to the lighthouse and the bifurcated nature of to the lighthouse you know before the war after yeah. the war and that little chapter in the middle which is just the empty house with the sound of the the guns across the channel and the wind coming through the windows and the rain damage in the house obviously in a way you know symbolic of course and 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 i feel like the two parts of this book really remind me of that basic movement pre-war and then in this case mid-war rather than post-war yeah. but so that a lot of i mean i i if this were a book all by itself without three following i would think oh gee it's interesting he seems to be trying something here but it feels only half done and and of course there are going to be more books and i'm and i i really want to see um how far he brings tijans um you know in his perception of the world in his self-perception yeah um 
I'm right on the fence about whether I'm going to do that. I, I'm telling myself I'm going to do it. I don't know if I'm actually going to read all four of the books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Try. I mean, again, I think there's so many books out there to read. Them. But but I think in a way, book the second book, per, uh, No More Parades, yeah. is both in a way even harder to read than the first book, but also in a way... I mean, more rewarding in the sense that I, I think you do start to see what it is that what what really Ford wants to bring up, uh, and I, and I think presumably partly from his own experiences in the war is just how horrible wars are, and how horrible this war was, and how wars do not make people better; they take everything of people in the war and outside the war, and it just makes everything worse. People die, people are ashamed, people yeah. act badly, people, um, you know, this this drumbeat that the non-combatants back in England, you know, all the men who don't go hate all the men who do go, and all the men who do go hate the ones back there because they don't know. It 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 tears at every every bit of fabric. It tears at any conception of goodness so much of stuff that you end up doing you end up feeling guilty about um so i think that the idea of um it both contains the idea that war is hell you know but i don't the part that i read so far didn't seem to differentiate between this war and any other war except that you know like he could have had similar injuries you know like there's certainly there are plenty of books about people who come back from any war where it's like oh and then they're just not the same as they used to be they have some injury that you know it happens in a lot of books and um i think that the stuff that surrounds it um about the end of one order and the beginning of another order I think that that's where it feels like it is both about the grimness of the war itself, you know, the pieces of the nurse, that story, and also about um, how it's like, it's just like a crack in the world that allows some things to happen that could otherwise have never happened. And then other things um, it precludes. And he is more invested in the things that it precludes you know, the like the um, ongoing flourishing of a feudal lord, for instance, and all of his assumptions about what, you know, how do you do your duty? How do you live with honor? What does it mean to, you know, fulfill your obligations, those things. Um, and it appears to be focused on that because he's the character that the author is like, you know, that he's God's on his side. But I think that it's also about how there, there are new possibilities that that come from the total destruction of all of these structures and bonds in society. Yeah, and and in a uh, in one way, which he is of course talking about the women's suffrage from the beginning. Um, I had to look this up to to make sure that I understood correctly, but. Uh, women in Britain first get the vote, at least um, two, about two thirds of the women in Britain get the vote in 1918. Um, and so, and then two or three years later, they then wind it. But uh, so 
the the verities um, of the past, uh, you know, which fall and bring in if, uh, bring in new things. You know, I, I, of course, Mrs. Dalloway is about pre and post war, even though she doesn't set any of it pre war. But I think, oh, what do you mean? Is this there's the whole flashbacks, like all the Dalloway flashbacks? I just, I'm. Oh right, sorry. Right. Yes, of course. I'm okay. sorry. I, I just mean you're right. I I mean. I mean, the just the what's considered the present of the novel. Yes, um, yes. is just the day of the party, um, but uh, but there too the big the big theme there underlying everything else uh, is is the um, you know the the I mean I think I think I think every smart writer understands that you're looking back to supposedly the glory period of you know English stability and greatness before the war. Of course, that's like a golden dream of nonsense, and that and that the war at least strips away that, um, even if it's in every other way <laughs> horrible. There was one thing I just wanted to say because we haven't really one of the things I really like about this book. Um, which is just the way that Ford writes it. I just wanted to make sure I I managed to say it at one point. Oh, yeah, the, um, of course, no, you should. No, no, no. It's. I mean, I've been I've been nattering on about other things, but again, whether it's actually called a symbolist novel or not, whether that's the appropriate term. But for example, I I really like the way he sets up relatively subtly. I think these certain um, images or scenes that have especially for me when i reread them i thought oh oh i think i see what what's going on here and the last the example i wanted to give was the last chapter of the first part um which is the one where tijans and valentine are at night going through the fog they've they've taken the other suffragette who's being looked at for by the police they've left her at like a cousin's house or something like that they're coming back at night um, and so they're in this, they're in this more Moorish field, you know, this wide open flat field with, with, um, fog, you know, up to their heads, basically, and they're wandering around. And the second time around, because of the way the novel ends, uh, because of the way this chapter ends, I thought, you know, this feels like the gas of World War One. It feels like a prevision. And in fact, Tijans even says to Valentine, because he's filled with all these facts, he says, Oh, the Chinese, this reminds me, the Chinese used to use smoke to, to you know, uh confuse their enemies. Um and and the way the chapter ends is that general, General Campion, who's this he he he, he's a total fool. I mean, he he never gets anything right. He never listens to anything. It's always commented about how how dumb he is. And he's this general. And he's driving a car, which he doesn't know how to drive. Mm -hmm. And he comes out through the fog and he mortally or terribly maims the horse yeah. that's pulling the wagon. And it's what makes Tijans cry. Yeah. Um, because and it's not just the horse, of course. It's the night with Valentine. He's realizing that he would that he loves her. Yeah. Um, there's the thought about his being stuck in the marriage, um, which he would absolutely, you know, never, never, you know, so that feeling of being trapped. 
He has, thinks that he may be unable to produce children because neither of his brothers can do it, and and Sylvia's child might not be his. And and I realized this last image just before the break is of a general. We're going to later see this same general out in World War One because he's still got a career. This general operating a mechanized vehicle that he can't control, killing basically killing the horse, and and the last you know in the fog yeah, <laughs> fog of <yeah>. war <laughs> and and the last image is Tijan's waiting for the knacker's cart to yeah. show up and i just thought in a way that i find very satisfying that it just feels like this nightmare prevision of the coming war with these generals who are old school generals now in charge of much more mechanized units that they don't know how to control and they don't know how to change their tactics for like machine guns, uh, sending huge numbers of people to be slaughtered um, because they don't know how to, they don't know how to live in, 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 and, and, and operate in a more mechanized world. Um, so anyway, I, I well, and to, just to add the cherry on top of that, he does succeed in saving the suffragettes, though. You know, like they are the ones who come through okay. Right. Um, and he succeeds in saving Valentine's reputation yeah. by scolding them. Um, and he succeeds in, in helping the other one elude the police. Um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, so I he, he does... That that's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I, I for people who are listening to this who haven't read it and are trying to think, gee, do I want to read this? <laughs> I, I I just wanted to say that for me, the consistent one of the consistent pleasures throughout is, um, if we only talk about the themes, but I wanted to talk about the 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 just the concrete way Ford arranges his scenes um, in ways that I just find quite satisfying um quite symbolic but not in a but not in a heavy-handed way yeah they work as scenes as well as working symbolically all right that's our episode on parade's end thank you so much to brian and to adam bear for our music as well as to everyone at literary hub for hosting us as always, we love to hear from listeners. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tweet to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and goodbye till next month.